Is the church today doing everything it can to provide women a firm foundation of truth in Christ Jesus? Well, it's true there's no shortage of candy-coated Bible studies, potluck fellowships available to ladies. But beyond Sunday morning, are Christian women being properly equipped to stand against the same deceptions that even enticed Eve in the garden? In an attempt to address the need for trustworthy, biblical resources for women, No Compromise Radio is happy to introduce Equipping Eve, a ladies-only radio show that seeks to equip women with fruits of truth in an age that's ripe with deception. My name is Mike Abendroth, and I'm pleased to introduce your host, Aaron Benzinger, a friend of No Compromise Radio and a woman who wants to see other women equipped with a love for and a knowledge of the truth of God's Word. Welcome to Equipping Eve, the show that seeks to equip you with fruits of truth from God's Word. So we can stand strong on that word in an age of deception. Fruits of truth, that means we go straight to Scripture, and that is our authority. Scripture is black and white. It is the only objective truth out there. It's God's Word. It's from God. God inspired the human writers. The Holy Spirit inspired those writers. And what is written can be trusted The Bible is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. It is God's word. Have I said that already? Okay, there you go. So anyway, that is why we like to study it. Because is there really anything else worth studying to such a degree? No, there really isn't, is there? So that is why we go to the Word of God for those fruits of truth. My name is Erin Benziger. I am your host, and Equipping Eve is on social media. Hey now, did you know we're on Facebook? Go to Facebook, type in Equipping Eve, and I assume the page will come up. Although I admit I've never actually searched for my own page. Anyway, it is there. I update it, so I know it's real. Equipping Eve is on Twitter, at Equipping Eve is the handle there, so you can check that out. Check out EquippingEve.com or .org, both addresses get you to the same place. That is the primary Equipping Eve website where you will find the latest episodes posted, you will find a blog, you will find resources like other podcasts, other uh, great websites that I recommend, you'll find a Bible study, you can even read a little bit about me there, um, which is really only there because I feel like you have to have something. You can't be this like weird, anonymous, nebulous voice. Um, <clears throat> so that's there. Um, anyway, anyway, so there you go. That's all of the social media mumbo jumbo for the day. I wonder where that phrase came from. Mumbo jumbo doesn't really make any sense. All right. So before we get into today's topic, I've decided to start a new segment here, and this may be the only time we actually do this segment, but nevertheless, I'm going to do it today, and it's called Christianese Pet Peeves. At least that's what it's called today. I was thinking about this today, and um, it's my show, so I'm going to talk about it very, very briefly, but so Christianese, you know, that's the language of Christians. Um... If you don't speak the language, you're probably not saved. 
if you actually, I'm joking. If you don't speak the language, it probably means that you've never spent any time in a seeker sensitive church. That's what I'm thinking. So Christianese, you know, uh, that would be the language of saying blessings to everyone and everything. Um, you know, you, you finish all your Twitter posts with hashtag blessings, um, or hashtag blessed, uh, you sign your emails, blessings, um, which side note, if you have a professional job, don't sign your emails, blessings. I knew someone who did that once and it was ironic on so many levels. So that's, um, not advisable from a professional standpoint. So, okay. So that's one example of Christianese, um, Let's see. Oh, um, you know, we do life together, you know, here at this church, we do life together. And so doing life, that's a Christian expression, Christianese. So anyway, the, the one that I was thinking about this morning is um, loving on someone. Oh, he was hurting. And so we just loved on him. And please don't think I'm making fun of you if you've said this, because I'm pretty sure I've said this in the past, although probably begrudgingly and only because I couldn't think of anything else to say. Um, so there's this website that is dictionaryofchristianese.com. It exists. It's a thing. Uh, and it says love on means to show someone that you care about them by using encouraging and affirming words or by putting an arm around them or giving them a hug. My voice is cracking like a 12 year old boy or giving them a hug or even just by spending quality time with them to show you care. Loving on someone is a visible, concrete, obvious demonstration of love. So, you know, not bad things. You know, it's being an encourager. Um, it's, you know, being there for our Christian brothers and sisters when they are in a time of need and a time of trial or uh, even rejoicing with them in, in times of happiness. So anyway, this uh, article goes on to describe why perhaps it's a slightly inappropriate phrase, which I won't go into. Um, but it's, it's just weird. I don't know. I've always, I always thought that phrase was a little bit strange, which is why I always felt awkward using it, which is why I've always avoided using it. And like I say, have probably failed. Um, but I don't know. It just, I think we maybe shouldn't use that phrase. Anyway, that's just my opinion, which doesn't actually matter for anything, but there you go, Christianese pet peeves. That's our segment for the day. Probably never to be repeated. Okay. So today, the title of today's podcast is Not Seen But Loved. Um, and I got that title from a little short devotional. And this devotional is in a book. See, here, let me give you the, the history here. This devotional is in a book called Little Visits with God. Uh, and this is an old book. I picked it up in a used bookstore, a used bookstore that I did not even know was in my city. And it's here and it's kind of awesome. Um, and it's a fun place to go. So anyway, it was kind of an exciting find. So I'm, you know, wasting time in this bookstore and I see... Uh, the the spine of this book on the shelf, Little Visits with God, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be something charismatic or whatever. And what it actually is, is a children's devotional. Um, 
It was published by Concordia Publishing House. It's Little Visits with God, Devotions for Families with Small Children by Alan Hart, Yasmin, and Martin Simon. I'm sure I mispronounced that first name, and my apologies to that individual. So this was actually published in 1957. So I picked this up, and I kind of flipped through it, and I thought, this is kind of a cool little book, um, lacking in some places perhaps, but a really neat idea. So what it is, is it's this little collection of devotional readings. It gives you a verse to read and then you read the devotional and then there's some questions so that you can sit with your children and discuss those questions. And then um, adults and older children can read the broader biblical passage and discuss further. And then there's a little prayer um, that goes along with each one. So I had to buy it because it was just really kind of fascinating. Um, okay, actually, the, it was first printed in 1957, and it was its 14th printing was in 1965. So there you go. So here's the foreword from this book. I'm going to read this very quickly. The foreword is written by Oscar E. Feucht, and he writes, Here indeed is a unique book of devotions for families with young children. While involving their interest and participation, it also offers rich instruction for older children and adults. There is nothing routine and formal about these devotions. They are full of warmth, dipped right out of life. Those of us whose children are grown could almost wish them young again in order to share these readings with them. This book will help children not only to know about God, but also to love him and to trust him. It cultivates right attitudes and shows how the Christian faith is to function in daily living. These devotions touch the heart as well as reach the mind. They are childlike without being childish. They lead to Jesus, the Savior and Good Shepherd, and it is through childlike trust in Jesus that we are saved. Can I just give an amen to that? He goes on, he says, The authors are to be congratulated on their achievement, rarely equaled in the devotional literature I have seen. The church has produced many prayer books for small children. This is one of the first devotional books to capture the interest of the child along with the parent and to relate this interest to a discussion of the truths of Christian faith and life. The authors represent a fine combination of talents united in a common task. Etc, etc. Uh, he he concludes and says, it is a distinct pleasure to help send this book on its way into the hearts and homes of Christian parents and into the lives of their children. By using these devotions early in life, parents will sow seeds that will enrich all the years to come. Worship periods in the home produce God-fearing people who are also a blessing, hashtag blessing, to others. May the church have many families who meet with God daily in family worship. So, you know, high praise for this book in the foreword. And then the authors have a quick note at the start. They say the language used in these devotions was determined largely, largely by a concern for the child. This accounts for the frequent use of popular, though sometimes quote-unquote incorrect grammar, and the simplification of some of the Bible verses. And so then it goes on. So they're just, you know, kind of explaining, like, we wrote this with small children in mind. And they say, may the Holy Trinity be pleased with the book and may all who use it be enriched as they commune with God and learn to follow their Savior Jesus more faithfully every day and every way. So intriguing, right? So of course I had to pick this up. It was, I don't know, $5, something like that. So I was reading it the other day and I came across this devotion titled, Not Seen But Loved. 
And the verse that goes along with this is 1 Peter 1.8, which they've simplified down to, without having seen Jesus, you love him. So since we are not children, let us flip in our Bibles to 1 Peter so that we can read this passage that this devotion is drawing from. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, ladies. As a reminder, I use the New American Standard. 1 Peter 1, I'm going to go back to verse 6 to catch it at the beginning of the sentence. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Okay, so that's the verse. You don't see Jesus, but you love him. So this devotional reads, Mother, how does Jesus look? asked Winifred. Her aunt had given her a picture of Jesus for her birthday, and it didn't look like the other pictures of Jesus at all. That's why she asked, how does Jesus look? Her mother couldn't tell her. I don't know, honey, she said, and nobody else knows either. They didn't make a picture of him when he lived on earth. The pictures we see are just the way some painters thought he may have looked. You mean, said Winifred, Winifred all the pictures are just make-believe pictures of Jesus? That's right, said her mother. That's the best we have. Nobody really knows how Jesus looked. Do you think you can still love him, even if you don't know how he looked? Asked Winifred's mother with a smile. Oh, sure, said Winifred. I love him no matter how he looks, but I'd like to know. You make me think of a little Bible verse, said Winifred's mother. The verse says, without having seen Jesus, you love him. That's what Peter wrote to all of God's children long ago. You know why, mother? Because we know what he did for us, said Winifred. That's why we love him without knowing how he looks. Let's talk about this. This is actually in the book. So this is their little discussion point. So they ask, what did Winifred wonder one day? What does Jesus look like? How do you think Jesus looks? Why doesn't anybody really know? And here's the most important. Why do we love Jesus even though we have never seen him? Because of what he's done for us, right? And then it gives you the Bible reading for older children and grown-ups and a little prayer. The prayer says, we, we would love you, dear Jesus, no matter how you looked. We love you because you loved us and died on a cross to save us. Keep us from sin and someday take us to heaven where we will see you and be with you forever. Amen. So you can see very childlike, very much directed to small children, but designed to initiate that family conversation, right? And just a cute little story and really opens it up for this great conversation about Christ and setting aside what he looked like physically and why do we love him because he first loved us because he loved us and loved his father and was obedient to his father he died on the cross to save sinners right he died on the cross for those whom god had chosen before the beginning of time and so i read this and i thought that was just such a neat little devotional it's just um so precious the the conversations that could result from that not seen but loved we love Jesus without knowing what he looked like. Think back to Thomas and his reaction when he saw the risen Savior. 
After eight days, uh, John 20, verse 26 reads, After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Remember, Thomas said, Well, I won't believe it till I see him for myself. And so there he was. Jesus showed up, and Thomas believed because he saw him. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. It is true that we don't know what Jesus looked like physically when he was here on the earth. And probably many of us would be surprised. You know, we have this picture based on Hollywood and, and those paintings that we've seen. And, you know, chances are um, Vidal Sassoon Jesus from that Roma Downey movie. What was that? The Bible? What was that called? I think that's what it was called. I don't know. Vidal Sassoon Jesus. I am sure if you Google that, you'll find something. Yeah, so I just Googled Vidal Sassoon Jesus. I knew I was going to come up with something from my friend Chris Rosebro. So because he's, I think, the one who coined that term. Um, yeah, so I found a, a, an old tweet of Chris's um, Vidal Sassoon Jesus from the Bible, which was the name of the movie. I was right. Um, anyway, that guy had great hair. So uh, that's where that comes from. Anyhow. You know, that's kind of what we have, this picture in our head, and that's very likely not what Jesus actually looked like. And that's okay, right? We'd rather he not look like a TV movie that was produced by Roma Downey. So, no, we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like when he walked the earth, but the Bible still gives us very vivid descriptions of Christ, doesn't it? And it even does give us some physical ones, though perhaps not what we would expect or think of. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to start reading from verse 9 and then we'll, we'll uh, distinguish these descriptions here. Daniel 7 verse 9. Daniel writes, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Pause there. You know, I think we've heard that description before, but this is actually God the Father. Um, but, you know, think, think of this description. Doesn't this sound a little familiar? Uh, maybe Ezekiel saw something similar. We see this other places in scripture. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the Ancient of Days is described in verse 9, and that's actually God the Father. And then there, in verse 13 and 14, we see the Son of Man. The MacArthur Study Bible says about these verses, this is the Messiah, that Christ is meant. He often designated himself by this phrase, and it's true, you can see this um, several places in the Gospels. MacArthur writes that the clouds of heaven are seen again in Revelation 1-7, and that here in these verses in Daniel, Christ is distinct from the Ancient of Days or the Eternal One, the Father. MacArthur writes that here Jesus is distinct from the Ancient of Days or the Eternal One, the Father, who will coronate him for the kingdom. And so the Son of Man is Jesus Christ. So who is this Son of Man that Daniel is writing about? So turn in your Bibles, ladies, to the Gospels. Let's start in Matthew, just so that we can see how Scripture interprets Scripture and how Scripture is consistent with itself. Matthew 16, verse 27 for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's Jesus referring to himself. In chapter 19, verse 28, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man. Go to Matthew 24. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus describing himself. He is the Son of Man. Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So by one, uh, the count of one website, and I've not gone through to count it myself, um, but this phrase, the Son of Man, is used 80 times in the Gospels. I don't know if that's accurate or not. So if you go through and count, you can let me know if I'm wrong. Um, but there in Daniel, chapter, chapter 7, where we first read, that's where it first appears, right? So then Jesus comes along and constantly uses this to refer to himself. I mean, we just looked at Matthew, but there's references in Mark, there's references in Luke, and then we go into Revelation as well, and it's all over the place. It's Jesus saying, hey, that guy back there in Daniel, that's me. And in fact, um, one place where Jesus uses this reference is in um, Matthew chapter 8. We didn't look at that, um, verses 18 through 22. That's where he says that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So um, John MacArthur in a sermon has explained this passage 
and has said that Jesus affirmed he was the son of man and explains that this is a term of humiliation. Son of God speaks of deity, right? Kind of obvious. Son of man, his humiliation, his humanity. So according to MacArthur, he's saying there in Matthew 8, in my humiliation, I don't even have what foxes have. Um, you know, they have a, a little burrow in the ground and birds have their nests. And he's saying, I don't even have that. That's the humili humility of Christ. In my humiliation, explains MacArthur, I don't have the basic comforts of life. And if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to give that up. So if Christ gave up all that he gave up, you know, we, we read that even in um, Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. His humility, he humbled himself, Paul goes on to write. Son of man references that. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, yeah, that son of man from the Old Testament, that's me. And that is a vivid description of Christ, just to bring us back here so we're not getting too far off track. What I'm trying to show, ladies, is this description of Christ that is in the Bible. He is the Son of Man. He is humble. And he is the one who was prophesied long before his earthly birth. And we have that kind of physical description of him coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, and then there's another very vivid description of the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Mm, sounds like John 1. Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. <clears throat> From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce, fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's a description for you. Christ coming on the white horse, his eyes a flame of fire, his head has many diadems. On his robe and on his thigh, he's written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if we want a physical description of Christ, we have some, right? <clears throat> but far more important than what Jesus looked like is who he is, right? He is the son of man who humbled himself and, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the son of God, is he not? He is God. I and the Father are one, said Jesus. So what does Jesus really look like? Because as that short story, that devotional that we read at the beginning, as that indicated, far more important than what he looked like is what he's done and who he is. Because who he is, he did what he did because of who he is. And that is why we love him. 
because he loved us first. So what does Jesus really look like? Well, we could spend forever, really, right? Until Jesus returns, looking at scriptures and determining that. So we're just going to um, kind of skim the surface here. And I want us to consider very briefly, I'm just going to run through these, the I am statements and how they paint a picture of, of Christ and who he is and therefore what he looks like in terms of who he is rather than in terms of what he looks like in a mirror. So think about it. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. I know, we ran through those really quickly. So let's slow down really, really fast. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the means of salvation. This great I am, the I am from the Old Testament, is our Savior. And just as God provides our physical bread to eat and feed our bodies, he also provides us heavenly bread. Jesus is the bread which comes down out of heaven. From John 6, uh, verses 50 to 51. So those verses speak to the fact that he has always existed and speak to his deity. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And those who eat, quote unquote, the living bread of Christ will live forever. So this is, is a description of the means of salvation. Jesus Christ is the means of salvation. It is through Christ that we obtain eternal life, just as through eating physical bread and food, we maintain our physical life for a time anyway. I am the light of the world reveals the truth. I am the light of the world means that Jesus reveals the truth about who God is and who man is. And when we believe upon Christ and when we trust in his atonement, his atoning sacrificial death, we are freed from the bondage and darkness of sin. Right? I am the door. I mean, you have to kind of look at the context of this passage to really understand. Um, but he's speaking about this sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep in John 10, 7. So each night, the sheep of a flock would be enclosed in a sheepfold, and this was guarded, and only the shepherd had the authority to come in through the door, and, and there are false teachers that climb over the door, right? You remember that analogy? But Christ is the shepherd who has the authority to come through the door, and he alone is the entrance into that sheepfold. He is the door. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Again, salvation in Christ alone. I am the good shepherd. This is probably my favorite. John 10, 11, and also in verse 14. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So his death was an actual death that actually was affected 
for his effective for his sheep. So the true shepherd cares for his sheep even to the point of death. He is the good shepherd who is prophesied in the Old Testament. So he, he is the only way into the sheepfold. He is not a revolving door. And he is the good shepherd who will protect, lead, sustain, and save his sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Again, Jesus is the means to eternal life. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He not only gives life, he is life. He can not only raise the dead, he raised himself from the dead. We must believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can see as you read the Gospel of John that Jesus kind of progressively reveals himself to his disciples. And these I am statements kind of sum a lot of that up. And so he says, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he's really reaffirming everything he's taught them up to this point. I am the only way to God. I am the only full and comprehensive truth about God. And I am the giver of the life of God. The giver of eternal life. I am the way and the truth and the life, says Jesus. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And those who abide in Christ will bear fruit accordingly. So Christ is the true vine. His father is the vine dresser. He goes on, John 15, 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, the vine dresser. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So this is, this is the outworking of who Christ is and the impact that it then has on our life. We are the branches. Those who are dead are cut off. And those who bear fruit are pruned so that they may bear more fruit. those who abide in Christ in the true vine. So there, that's those I am statements give us a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus looks like, right? What else? What else? We've seen he's the son of man. We know that he is the son of God. We've seen these I am statements that he is the only way to salvation and that he is the life giver and the sustainer and the shepherd. He is God. I and the Father are one. Think about the Gospels. You know, so often we study the epistles, and, and rightly so, but we can't forget the Gospels because those really reveal Christ to us. That is how we get to know Christ. Yes, he's in the entire Bible, but the Gospels, that's his life. That is, those, they are just the most beautiful books in the Bible because of what they tell us about Christ. So how do those Gospels portray our Savior? He is humble, right? That goes back to that son of man thing. And he is deity. He is the son of God. But he was meek. He was gentle. He was wise. He was zealous for truth. You think of the um, clearing of the temple and clearing of the money changers. You know, no holds barred. But at the same time, For those who are in need of Christ and those whose hearts were opened by the work of the Holy Spirit, he was not angry. Instead, 
he comes to them with the truth, right? And he reveals their sin to them in a loving way. And then we see repentance and faith in him. He was honest, but not in a snarky way. He was persistent. He was powerful. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. He was emotional. Not in a, oh, I'm led by my emotions sort of way, but he was human. He got tired. He was weary. He was reliant upon his father and the strength from communing daily with his father. He was kind. He was loving. That is Christ. That's what Christ looks like. And those are the qualities that matter. And think of how many of those we are called to communicate as well. Because those are God's communicable attributes, right? There are some that we cannot mimic. We cannot call on the wind and the waves to obey us doesn't happen. We are not omniscient, but we can be kind. We can be gentle. We can be humble. We can be zealous for the truth in a non-sinful way. This is our Christ. This is what he looks like. This is why we love him for who he is and for what he has done. What has he done? He came to earth, humbled himself, condescended to come to earth as a man in the form of man. He lived the perfect life that we cannot, kept God's law perfectly, which is what we are called to do if we're going to earn our own way to heaven. And guess what? We can't. We've all sinned every single minute of every single day. He died the death that we deserve, bore God's wrath for our sin, for the sin of all who would ever believe, and rose again, confirming God's acceptance of that sacrifice. What is he doing now? He's interceding for those who are his. This is Jesus Christ, and though we have not seen him, we love him. Not seen, but loved. Loved immeasurably, exceedingly, in abundance, and yet not loved enough, not loved perfectly. Someday, someday, ladies, we will be before him and then we can love him as he deserves to be loved. I look forward to that day, but in the meantime, we are to be busy about his work, but we can't be busy about his work if we are not in his word. So ladies, until next time, get in your Bibles, get on your knees, and get equipped. Thanks for listening. Is the church today doing everything it can to provide women a firm foundation of truth in Christ Jesus? Well, it's true there's no shortage of candy-coated Bible studies, potluck fellowships available to ladies. But beyond Sunday morning, are Christian women being properly equipped to stand against the same deceptions that even enticed Eve in the garden? In an attempt to address the need for trustworthy, biblical resources for women, No Compromise Radio is happy to introduce Equipping Eve, a ladies-only radio show that seeks to equip women with fruits of truth in an age that's ripe with deception. My name is Mike Abendroth, and I'm pleased to introduce your host, Aaron Benzinger, a friend of No Compromise Radio and a woman who wants to see other women equipped with a love for and a knowledge of the truth of God's Word. 